Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Rem, Rem fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for gathering us together this morning as the people of God to worship you through song and to pray with one another and encourage one another in our faith. And Lord, for the opportunity to open your holy word. God, we pray now that we've read your word, that you would allow your word to penetrate into our hearts. And that Holy Spirit, you would take these words that were penned thousands of years ago, and you would bring them to life in each of us today. That, Lord, you would give us faith today, that you would strengthen our faith today. Lord, we pray that you would give us instruction and understanding so that we might know how to please you and honor you with the lives that you've given to us. Lord, we want to live for your glory and not our own. And so, God, we pray that you would Teach us and guide us into what that life looks like that we're called to. Lord, bless us now. Speak to us. Minister to us. We would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you all. Great to see you. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat? So here we are, finally at the end of this book that we've been studying together, getting to the conclusion here of the book of Ruth. And I personally have been so enriched studying this book together and uh, being able to understand the message that God is communicating to us through the book. And I've been hearing plenty of positive feedback from different members in the church of just how God's word here in the book of Ruth has been resonating with us and ministering to us in profound ways. Some of you have mentioned that you've maybe been out exercising, been on a walk, and things in this book have been in your mind and in your heart that you've been processing. Others have been conversating about the book of Ruth together over a meal. These are the kinds of things that we hope would be happening in every book that we study in the Bible. Uh, I've even heard that this book has made it into some people's dreams. Ryan came into the office a couple of days ago and shared with me that he had a dream and it related to the book of Ruth and I got to be in the dream, which was really exciting. And I said, well, tell me all about it. What happened? And he said that uh, him and his wife, Taylor, were driving in the car and they were trying to basically get into this compound where these bad guys were in there. And they needed to go recover something out of this compound. 
And of course, as dreams go, things aren't always the way that they happen in the real world. So they had to go into a farmhouse and then up through the attic and out a window and then they would land in this compound and they could go recover whatever they needed. So they did. They got inside and they got what they thought they needed, but Taylor fell out of the vehicle as Ryan was trying to escape and he lost her in there. She was taken captive by some bad people. And so he needed to turn around now and go rescue his wife. So I'm sitting here listening to this thinking, okay, this is where I come into the dream, right? We're going to get all call of duty right now. We're going to get our gear on. We're going to go rescue his wife together. But this isn't where I entered the scene. He goes back in and he's trying to go recover his wife and rescue her. And he ends up getting captured by the bad guys that are in there. And they end up dragging him along and taking him up to the head honcho, the big guy up in his office. And they have him tied up and slam him down in a chair. And he looks up and who's the bad guy? It's me. (laughs) Except I don't even make eye contact with him. I'm just staring out the window like this. And he's behind me sitting in a chair with some of my henchmen holding him. And then here's the Ruth reference. The one thing I said is this. Without even looking at him, I just said, I always knew you were a Moabite. And then they drug him off and took him away, and that was the end of the dream. So obviously, there's something dysfunctional about our work relationship together. Maybe, Jason, you can help unpack some of that for us. I don't know exactly what's going on, but anyway, this has been a great series, and we are now at the end of it here, which I'm a little bit sad about, but honestly, the end here does not disappoint. What an amazing conclusion that Kuman just read for us here in the book of Ruth. I titled our final sermon here, Happily Ever After. So if you're a note taker, you can jot that down, happily ever after. And that's just so fitting because you and I love a good ending to a story. In fact, we almost demand that stories have a good ending with perfect resolution. We want the characters to sort of end up happily ever after. So much so, in fact, that we get upset if that's not how a story ends. I've not seen this movie, but I read about the 2013 film August Osage County, which features uh, Meryl Streep, and she plays this kind of domineering matriarch in this film, and throughout the whole film, she's basically the one who's responsible for all of the dysfunction in her family. She's harsh, she's cold, it's rather unloving, and the film fittingly ends with Streep weeping in the arms of a housekeeper as each of her grown daughters abandon her. But as the credits roll, there's one final scene where the eldest daughter, who's played by Julia Roberts, is standing in this field and she's smiling and the sun's going down and she's just watching these horses out in the field that are playfully running together. And then there's an upbeat song that plays with these lyrics, things are always better when we're all together. Now, the ending of the film feels misplaced because of everything that you've seen up to that point. But the reason it feels misplaced is for good reason. I was reading about this, it said that evidently when the movie was shown to test audiences and it had that original ending of Meryl Streep weeping in the arms of her housekeeper, the audiences actually rebelled against it and demanded that the producers put a happy ending in the film. It didn't feel right. Thus the movie ends with a classic Julia Roberts smile and a pop anthem. Audiences get their happy ending no matter how forced it is. And again, that's because good stories have good endings. We expect that, we want that, we yearn for that sense of resolution when kind of all the strings get tied together and there's a beautiful bow sitting on top. Well, Ruth is a good story in that classic sense. Here in this book, we get a happy ending. 
Our characters have been through a tough journey and now all of a sudden everything comes full circle for them. If you've been studying this book with us, over these four chapters, we have seen great tragedy befall the women who are the main characters here. In chapter one, Naomi, who's the first main character that gets introduced, leaves Israel. She leaves the town of Bethlehem. She travels to a neighboring kingdom, the kingdom of Moab, with her husband Elimelech because they're going there to seek food. See, a famine had fallen on Bethlehem. Well, while they were in that country with their two sons, tragedy strikes and Elimelech dies. Now, Naomi is widowed with two sons. Well, her sons both married in Moab, and uh, Ruth was still dwelling there for many years with these adult sons and her daughters-in-law, until suddenly both of her sons died, and now she is left widowed in this faraway land with two daughters-in-law. Finally, she hears that God visits his people in Bethlehem. He's brought bread to Bethlehem, and so she decides, hey, I've got nothing going for me in Moab. I'm going to return home and go and see if I can find food and provision back home. One of her daughters stays in Moab. The other one, Ruth, travels with her back to Bethlehem. Once she gets there, she begins to work in the fields, and she meets the last main character in the story, a man named Boaz, and she's gleaning in his field, and he's a wealthy man, and they find out that Boaz is a relative. In fact, he's somebody who can redeem them, meaning that he's eligible to marry Ruth, and help produce an heir that will actually inherit everything that belonged to Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. And this heir would then perpetuate the line of her family and basically provide security for Naomi forever. Last week, Pastor Ryan taught chapter 4, the beginning of it, where uh, Boaz actually goes and he formally redeems her. He spends the money to buy the property and he secures his future together with Ruth. And now in these verses, it's almost like the author is just tying together the last bit of the story, letting us know that everything ends happily ever after. And so in this first paragraph here, verses 13 through 17, what we see here is we see the resolution that the characters could see. The resolution that they were able to see God bring about in their own lifetimes. Before they died, they got to see that God tied up the loose ends in their story and God was good to them after all. We see right there in verse 13 that Boaz and Ruth finally tie the knot, they get married, and God blesses them with a baby. Look at the phrasing there. It says that the Lord gave her conception. Now, this is only the second time and the last time that the author of this story, the book of Ruth, is going to describe the direct action of God. This is only the second time. The first time was all the way back in chapter 1, verse 6, where we read this. Then she, speaking of Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So God there in chapter 1 directly intervenes in the story to bless his people with food, and now he's blessing them again. First it was bread from the barren fields, now it's with a baby from a barren womb. And it's not just any child that these two are blessed with. Boaz and Ruth, we hear, actually have a little boy. 
she bore a son. And what this means is that the redemption that they sought after is actually complete. Because now there is an official heir to inherit all of Elimelech and Malon's property and to carry on their family name. Somebody is outside just chirping away, huh? Fly away, little bird. Okay, I got totally sidetracked. I was like, what is that? That's not a child, is it? (laughs) Okay, so anyway, redemption is complete. There is this heir now who's going to secure Naomi's future. In verse 14, notice that this, it sounds like somebody went out there and quieted that bird for us. In verse 14, this miraculous and gracious miracle from God where he gives this barren woman conception and gives her a son prompts the townswomen to begin to praise the Lord and to offer a prayer for the future of this child. Look again at verse 14. Then the women, so this is the townswomen, they said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. So they're like, praise God for what he has done for you. You have a redeemer now. The story is complete. The redemption is complete. And may the name of this young redeemer, may this baby that you're holding, may he grow up to be famous and well-known and established in Israel. Now, in verse 15, they go on to say this. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So I want you to just think about what they said there, that he's going to be a restorer to you and that he's going to be a nourisher of your old age. I want you to contrast that with chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. I'm going to put them on the screen here. Because if you remember back in chapter 1, the last time that Naomi and the townswomen are talking together, the scene is totally different. And Naomi in chapter 1 Once the townswomen see her and go, oh my gosh, is that Naomi? Remember, she bitterly complains against the Lord because things have gone so badly for her. In chapter 1, verse 20, Naomi says to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, which means pleasant, when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So in chapter 1, this interaction with these townswomen is totally different. From Naomi's perspective, with the absence of the men in her life, she is utterly empty. And she sees that all of this has come from the hand of the Lord. But now, here she is with this little man in her lap. And she and the townswomen together sense that she is actually abundantly full. He's going to be a restorer of life to her. He's going to be a nourisher of her old age. This little baby boy, like all grandkids, lifts this woman's spirits. He breathes life back into this elderly widow. But even more so, because this little boy is going to be able to grow up and inherit the property of Elimelech, work the land, and now provide for his grandmother through the end of her life. He is going to nourish her in her old age. So the women go on then to also praise Ruth, the physical mother of this little boy. What do they say about her? They say that Ruth is 
more than seven sons to you. Now, seven is the number of perfection or the number of completion. So to talk about a family being blessed with seven sons is kind of saying, listen, your, your quiver is full. God has just maxed you out on blessings. You have a complete quiver full of sons. Back in chapter one, Naomi felt empty even though she had Ruth. But now in chapter four, we're realizing that Ruth was more than enough to secure Naomi's fullness. So in verse 16, we see that Naomi gets to be grandma now. It says, then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. You can see this woman, she's got to just be beaming with joy at the sight of this precious little baby. He's sitting in her lap. She's going to be able to care for him and help mom and dad raise him. Now in verse 17, the women from the neighborhood give this little baby a name. That's interesting. I know I personally as a parent would be very nervous to let other people be responsible for naming my children. There's a lot of weird names out there, right? Like think about the name. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that right now. Did you really think that lowly of me? I would not do that right now. But you know as well as I do, there's a lot of weird names out there. Now, probably the parents also had some say in what name this child was going to get. We see evidence of that in other places. But this seems to be a custom back then when the, the women would gather together and try to think about what the right kind of name would be for this child. And these women evidently do a good job because the name that's determined for this little baby is Obed. And the word Obed or the name Obed means one who serves. One who serves. And that's so fitting because Obed is operating in this story now as a servant of Yahweh or a servant of the Lord. He's fulfilling this role of redeemer in this family line. But also he's going to serve grandma for the rest of her life and take care of her needs, which if you've been with us in this series, you know that was a huge concern for this woman, Naomi. How would she be cared for through the rest of her life? Well, this little guy, one who serves, is going to serve his grandma well. Now, here's a little quick note before we move on. Notice in verse 17 that it says this. It says that a son has been born to Naomi. Now, that's kind of odd because Naomi didn't have a son. She technically had a grandson. But it's significant and it's important in the story because this points to the legal identity of this young boy, Obed. Obviously, he was literally and physically born of Ruth. But we know that he was going to enjoy status for the rest of his life as Naomi's son. Because again, he's the inheritor of all of Elimelech and Naomi's property. And he's the one who is going to perpetuate or continue the line of Elimelech that was going to be exterminated in Israel. And so, again, he is identified as the son of Naomi. What that points to is the fact that the loss of her own children in Moab is being completely reversed now. She has a son now, somebody to carry on the family name. So as the story ends here, what do we find? We find that Boaz is full. We find that Ruth is full. We find that Naomi is full. God has brought everything full circle for these characters who at first were so empty and so vulnerable. With Naomi, God has redeemed and restored her completely. These three characters are living evidence for all of us of the promise in Romans 8.28, 
where we read, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I know this morning that some of you are, right now, you're going through tremendous trial, difficulty, hardship in your own life. Perhaps for you, it feels like the Lord has forgotten you. Or maybe even worse, you can identify with Naomi. It feels as if the Lord is actually dealing bitterly with you. That the Almighty is somehow against you or opposed to you right now. Well, friend, let this story, the story of Ruth, be an encouragement to you this morning. God has not forgotten about you. If you've placed your faith in the Lord, God has not forgotten about you. God cares about you. God knows what's going on. And listen to me, God has a plan in what's going on that is ultimately going to end for good. Here again, these verses in the scriptures, I think of Matthew 10, 29 through 30, where Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. This verse speaks of God's intimate knowledge of your life. He says, look, even a bird, a seemingly insignificant bird, doesn't fall to the ground without the Father's complete knowledge of it. Not a hair of your head goes unnumbered. Now, for me, obviously, that doesn't mean a lot. But for some of you with a full head of hair, that's like really significant. It means God's thinking a lot about you. That God is intimately aware of all of the specifics and the details of your life right now. Of course, the scriptures say that God's thoughts toward you are more numerous than all of the sand of the sea. I love being at the beach and just grabbing a handful and just looking at how many grains of sand are just in that handful. I've talked to my boys and I said, can you imagine how many grains of sand there are up and down every coastline on planet Earth? The point in that scripture, of course, is that his thoughts toward you are innumerable. They're, they're not even able to be calculated. This is how precious you are. And so, again, sometimes we're looking at the circumstances of our life and the way that things feel to us feel like God has forgotten. The way that they felt to Naomi is that the Almighty was not caring for her like he had promised to care for his people. Well, family, like the characters in this story, our stories will end happily ever after too. We can imagine now in this story that these characters are just going to kind of ride out the sunset years of their lives with fullness, just happy. Everything's awesome. The family is taken care of. Boaz is this wealthy man who's going to provide. Everything is awesome. Everyone is fulfilled. And so this is the great conclusion to the story that all of us are hoping for. God does it. God brings everything full circle. This is the perfect place for the story of Ruth to end. Except it doesn't. It goes on with a few more verses here. Why doesn't it end? What's wrong with this storyteller? Doesn't he know to stop while he's ahead? He moves on now to what, I guess to me and probably to you, seems like an anticlimactic genealogy. There's some kind of boring footnotes about a family tree. So why doesn't he stop the story at verse 17? Well, the answer is this. The story doesn't end there because the story of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz doesn't end there either. And this brings us to the second movement in today's text, 
We just talked about the resolution that the characters could see, the things that God brought together and the loose ends that God tied up in their own lives. But next we see the resolution that the author of the story could see. And we find this in verses 17 through 22. Notice with me the end of verse 17. It says, They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David? Like King David? Yes, like King David. That's exactly who this is. And that's a really big deal. And that's why verses 18 through 22 end with the genealogy of all genealogies for the people of God. This is the genealogy of the royal line. Now, now these names here in this last paragraph aren't really here for us to sit and try to dig out information on each character. Because to be honest with you, there's really not much to dig out on each of these characters. They're all kind of insignificant, except for this one significant fact that they all are part of the line that leads up to one character, the final name there, David himself. And that's really what we're meant to see here, is that they become part of the line of King David. Obviously, this story, or at least the final form of this story, was not completed until at least the reign of King David. And the author was able to see resolution beyond what the characters themselves were able to see. See, the author is now writing several hundred years after the events of the life of Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth, and he's able to see things that God was doing in their story that they had no idea that God was doing during their lifetime. Not only did God bring this young Moabitess to Bethlehem to meet Boaz and to secure her own future and Naomi's future and to rescue this one Israelite family. No, 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 God brought this Moabitess back to Bethlehem to meet Boaz so that she could bring blessing to the entire Israelite nation. Through what would be impossible odds if not for God, she becomes the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king, King David. I mean, think about it. Starting at the beginning, if there was no journey to Moab, there would have never been a Ruth. If there was never a Ruth, there would have never been a Boaz. If there was never a Ruth and Boaz, there would have never been an Obed. If there was never an Obed, there would have never been a Jesse. And if there were never a Jesse, then there would have never been King David. So yes, at one level, when we've been reading the story of the book of Ruth, God is absolutely working things out in the lives of each of these individual characters in a way that will bless them and will work out for their own good. But it doesn't stop there. God was doing so much more as he was working the events out in their life for their own good. It's like we're all sitting here and we're playing checkers and God is playing 4D chess. Okay, God is doing multiple things at the same time. Simultaneously, he's working events together in their lives, not only for their own individual good, but for the good of all of his people corporately. Sinclair Ferguson talks about the multitasking God. I love that idea. I mean, what does it mean to multitask? It means that you're not a person who's limited, like me, to doing one task well at one time. 
I can hardly even answer a question from my wife if I'm focused on one task. That's not the God we serve. God is simultaneously attending to millions and millions and millions and millions of projects simultaneously and millions and millions and millions of different people's stories simultaneously, all the while he's writing one larger story throughout history. It's amazing. We often think that we're the center of God's activity in the world. Right? I mean, I'll confess that oftentimes I fall into thinking that the beginning and the end of all that the Lord is doing on planet Earth right now is about Daniel Hooper's life. But that's just simply not true. God is big enough and God is wise enough to be attending to the needs of my life and caring for the needs of my life while he's simultaneously caring for the needs of all of your lives, while he's simultaneously working out his great plan of redemption in the world. It's amazing. God is writing all of our stories into a much larger story. And this helps explain why many elements of our own personal stories might feel like loose ends. Right? You look at your own life and you've gone through things in your life and you go, man, I just can't quite explain why God would allow that, or I don't understand what God was up to when he allowed that thing to happen or these circumstances to take place in my life, and you can't wrap your mind around what God is doing. I mean, this is definitely true for Naomi. I mean, yes, it seems like this is a wonderful, happy ending, and it is to the story, but we can't ignore the fact that the birth of this baby didn't fix every pain in Naomi's life or undo every grief That she experienced. Obed doesn't undo the pain and grief from losing her husband and her two sons. Obed doesn't replace that somehow and she, oh, well, it's no big deal that my husband died. Naomi went to her grave with some feelings of incompleteness in her story. Some parts of her story where she's going, well, God's been good and God's taken care of me, but man, I can't quite figure out what he was doing in that chapter of my life. And family, we're all going to feel that way. There's going to be sickness that came into your life or into a family member's. There's going to be death. There's going to be a global pandemic. There's going to be a loss of a job or a shutting down of a business or a moving out of state or a strained relation. There's going to be all sorts of things that happen in our lives and we're going to see resolution to some of them on this side of the grave and praise God for that. But there's going to be other things where you're just going to go to your grave and say, I just don't understand. I'm not sure what is going on. And part of the reason for that is this. Some of the purposes of God are impacting lives of people that you don't even know and that you may never know. In fact, some of the purposes of God in your life are going to impact generations that are not yet even born. This is certainly true of Naomi's story. She had no way of knowing that what God was doing in her story was going to impact so many other people. But from the author's vantage point, hundreds of years later, he could see resolution in this story that the characters themselves couldn't even dream of. Think of it this way. Had God allowed Naomi's life to go the way that she would have planned, which I'll guarantee you included her husband not dying when she was a young woman, her son's not dying, had God allowed Naomi's life to go the way she had planned, she would have died an obscure Israelite woman unknown to history. Had God allowed Ruth's life to go the way she would have planned for herself, 
she would have died an obscure Moabite woman unknown to history. But through tragedy and through hardship, God brought them both into Boaz's life, and through him, they both became a part of the royal line. It's amazing to think about. But family, it doesn't stop there. There's one final move in the story, and it's this, the resolution that we can see. But we have to turn to the New Testament to get this resolution. See, we're a couple thousand years more removed from the story than the author himself was. You and I are given an even more macro perspective on what was actually taking place in the book of Ruth. If you turn to Matthew chapter 1, we find there the genealogy of none other than Jesus Christ. Let me read you a few verses here. Matthew 1, verses 1 through 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez by Zerah, or Anzerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. So you'll see that genealogy we got in Ruth, at least part of it, completely reprinted here in Matthew. But if you drop down now to verse 16 in Matthew's genealogy, here's the conclusion. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Do you see what's going on here? This adds an entirely different and greater level to what was going on in the story. We're seeing now what the author himself couldn't even imagine or conceive of. According to Matthew chapter 1, Boaz's line does not reach its climax with King David. Boaz's line reaches its climax with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. This is where we go like this. <laughs> like mind blown, are you serious? This is what God was actually doing? I mean, think about it. What was God then doing through famine, through rebellion, through death, through immigration, through grief, through a harvest, through a redeemer, through marriage, through a baby? The answer is that God was bringing together the various pieces in his plan by which he would bring his one and only son into the world. This is incredible. See, with God folding Ruth the Moabite into the Messianic line, we see early hints of God fulfilling the promise that he had made to Father Abraham to bless the families of the earth through his seed. But the fullness of that promise is reached not through Ruth's inclusion into the people of God, but through her descendant who, like her, would leave his home and come to Bethlehem and bring salvation to the whole world. How amazing is that? How incredible is that? I mean, look at God. Look at his wisdom. Look at his grace and his mercy to undeserving people. Yes, God was blessing their individual lives. God was caring for them in their own time. But God was also caring for his nation, the nation of Israel. 
And simultaneously, God was also caring for all of creation as he was securing the line of the Messiah through whom he would bring blessing to the entire world. This morning, each of us who, like Naomi and like Ruth, have put our trust in the Lord can take heart. God is taking the events of our lives and he's weaving them together in ways that will bless us and also fulfill his eternal purposes. In college, I was able to travel to Europe. I was blessed to be able to do that. One of my favorite things that I visited was the Vatican. And I remember walking through the Vatican and I was in this long corridor and I was walking and I noticed all of these humongous tapestries that were just hanging on the wall. And I was looking at them and they were hundreds of years old. And as I was staring at them up close and kind of scrutinizing them, to be honest with you, they looked like really dull. <laughs> and they looked kind of frazzled and they looked really, really worn and old. And I thought, this is kind of weird. You'd think they'd try to clean these things up, make them look nice. They ever heard of carpet cleaning? And uh, I was kind of like, wow, this is crazy that this is what they look like. But I turned around and on the far end of the other wall, there was other tapestries hanging there. And what was amazing is from that distance, I was able to see the entire tapestry instead of just the little part that I was looking at. And it was so beautiful and so magnificent when I was able to get the big picture of everything weaved together. This is what our lives are going to be like. As we sit, just like these characters, and we look at our lives so zoomed in, we're going to see that there's a lot of our lives that seem frazzled, that seem worn. Everything doesn't look pretty. Everything doesn't look perfectly put together. But when it's all said and done, and you and I are able to look at our lives, we're going to see as we step back and see all of what God was doing in time and eternity, and we're going to be completely blown away. And we're going to marvel at what God has been doing in our lives. We're sitting here over 3,000 years removed from Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And if we have eyes to see it, we're marveling at the good things that the Lord had planned for these people that he loved. Again, for us, even if we feel like things aren't going the right way right now, even if we feel like maybe we're in a season where the Lord's forgotten about us, the Lord doesn't care about us, we're totally wrong. One day everything is going to come full circle. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 reminds us of this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen, or rather for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 5,000 years from now, as you and I are in the presence of the Lord, and as we start seeing what God was ultimately doing through all of the different things that have happened in our lives, you and I are going to see that God was weaving together the tapestry of the cosmos into the most breathtaking masterpiece conceivable. And so this morning, my encouragement to you is take heart. The encouragement from the story of Ruth is take heart and trust the Lord. Again, we are playing checkers and he's playing 4D chess. 
He's going to work everything out in ways that will blow our minds. Now, one final thought. All of this is true only for the person who trusts in the Lord. If you've been listening carefully this morning, I've couched every one of these promises in language like this for those of us like Naomi who trust in the Lord. And the reason I do that is because these things are only true for those who trust in the Lord. Think of it this way. Naomi and Ruth were only brought into the family of the Messiah through faith. They trust in the Lord And when they trusted in the Lord, God brought them into the family of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. That has never changed. That's the way that you get into the family of God and you experience the fatherly love and care and protection of the Lord. And so this morning, if you've joined us and you've never placed your faith in the Lord, And see, for us, we know how the story goes that ultimately the Lord would come to us in Bethlehem as a baby in a manger 2,000 years ago. And that he would grow up and live a righteous life that you can't live. And he would lay down his life for us willingly on a cross where he would take the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven and we could have a right relationship with our Father. See, we know that part of the story. And so the call for us to be included into the people of God and into the family of the Savior is a call to trust in the Messiah, Jesus. To put your faith in him as your only hope for belonging to God's family and experiencing God's blessings for time and eternity. And so friend, if you've joined us this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, let today be the day that changes. Let today be the day that you say in your own heart, I am choosing to follow Jesus. And if you do that, your life will ultimately end in eternal good. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this story that is thousands of years old, but that is one more reminder of the great story of human history, the story of a relentless God who loves his creation, a story of a creation that has gone astray because of our own sin, but a story of a God who, because of his relentless love, came to us to rescue us from our own sin and bring us back into right relationship with him. Lord, I pray as we've considered this story one more time through the lives and the experiences of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz that you are stirring our hearts in faith to once again trust you whether right now things are going well in our lives and everything seems to be perfect and it seems that the Lord is fighting all of our battles. Well, Lord, help us to trust you in that or whether things right now are just not making sense. Perhaps if we're being honest this morning, we've been struggling with doubt. We've been feeling like the Lord has forgotten us, that the Lord has turned his back on us, that the Lord is interested in blessing other people, but doesn't care about us. Lord, I pray that you would renew our faith this morning. That this reminder that, God, you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose, that that truth 
would restore our faith this morning. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your care for your people. Thank you that your plans for us are so much greater than the plans we could ever envision for ourselves. So help us now to trust you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.